Hi, everybody. Before we get started, I just wanted to take this quick opportunity to say a big thanks to all of our listeners, new and old. Facebook has just rolled over to the 600 listener who has liked our show. Thanks so much to all of our listeners who have just been outstanding in representing the show, both on Facebook, on Reddit. So we've just been growing so incredibly fast, and we just wanted to take time before we started this episode to say thanks to all of you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. We cover a lot of heavy topics on our show, but none carries more gravity than the potential collapse of the financial sector and our system of global trade, which is what we're going to be covering today with Dmitry Orlov. And he has been writing about the potential for collapse and about the process of collapse due to energy and its interaction in the economy for years now and talking about the collapse gap between the United States and the USSR where he grew up and where he had the ability to go and travel around for many years as it fell apart so he got to see the perspective of an outsider on his culture but he was familiar enough with his culture that he could get in there, talk to people, and understand the process that was going on, and then compare the weaknesses that caused the Soviet Union to collapse to the United States to say that the United States would soon collapse as well. So after we talk to Dimitri about the hard times that are upcoming, we jump over to Lucas Folia, who takes pictures and actively interviews people who have chosen to move off the grid, who have chosen to go and live on homesteads and exit themselves from the culture that is pervasive around the Western society. Lucas is going to tell us about what it was like to live and to meet numerous people in the southeastern U.S. for a series of photographs that he put together called A Natural Order. We've got a jam-packed show today. Let's jump right in. Dmitry Orlov, thanks for joining us from Boston, Massachusetts today from your boat in Boston Harbor. Thank you. Great to be on your show. Dimitri, you've been at this for quite a while now, writing about peak oil and writing about the collapse of America and of industrial civilization. And now the symptoms are getting so severe that even the middle and the upper class are starting to feel this collapse in so many ways. And how are you seeing people maybe in Boston or in media reports starting to feel uh, the collapse in, in all the different classes in society? I run across a lot of people who don't know what it is they're looking at. They're dealing with more or less the same thing they've been dealing with all along. It's just that, you know, they're maybe suffering a little bit more. 
But these are normally the people who suffer, so they're used to it, and they take suffering as a normal sort of thing. I think it's a little bit different for the middle-class people because they feel that suffering is just a gigantic indignity, and they're a little bit more fragile psychologically, and they tend to come down with serious problems that need professional intervention. And I'm afraid to think of what will happen when the rich people start feeling the pinch because I think they'll just become suicidal right away. Really? Wow. I want to investigate some a little bit of your past and kind of give our listeners a, uh, a preview about where you're coming from and kind of how you're prepared uniquely to kind of make these forecasts that you've been making. I've watched some of your talks where you talked about how you grew up in Russia. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you uh, managed to come to the United States? Actually, it was the, the Jackson-Vanik Amendment that was recently repealed by the U.S. Congress, which uh, basically stipulated that uh, credits depended on um, the Soviet Union abiding and then Russia abiding by, by certain international conventions on the reunification of families specifically. And so that was a loophole that allowed a lot of people to leave Russia because, um, you know, the Soviet government was interested in getting uh, grain credits and that was a uh, a ploy that they used to get rid of undesirables, and my family was semi-undesirable. So we were allowed to leave politely. We got our exit visa for Christmas. So yeah, that, that's, that's how we ended up here. And then later on, I, I started going back to Russia because it was interesting, and I still had family there. And when I was done doing that, which was in 1996 or so, I had a lot of thoughts about, you know, why the Soviet Union collapsed because of all the stuff that I observed while I was there. And then I realized that, you know, the United States is, is not that far behind and started paying attention to peak oil at around that time and, and have been paying attention to it ever since. So it's, it's not as swift a process as the Soviet collapse, but uh, it's going in the same direction. And what was it that clued you into peak oil originally? For many years, it kind of sat as a fringe topic, as kind of something that many people even thought was a conspiracy theory. And now more and more science, more and more data comes in that's confirming that it's true, so much so that in the mainstream, people are starting to have to deny it even and come up with all of the shale gas and all of these things saying that America is going to be an oil exporter. So what was it that clued you in originally to peak oil? Well, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I, I, I'm not in public relations. So whether something is fringe or whether people consider it, you know, whatever theory doesn't actually have any impact on me at all. And the fact is that, you know, the, the theory was sound from about 1970 on. That's the last time that anybody cared to dispute it, really, uh, outside of, you know, people who chatter about things without knowing what they're talking about. So by the time I realized that that's what was going on, the reason I was clued into it is because the Soviet Union collapsed largely because of very low oil prices. It was very import-dependent. It relied on credits in order to import enough food to feed its people. And when oil prices went down to $10 a barrel because of uh, North Sea and Prudhoe Bay going on stream, Basically, their trade was severely disrupted, and they were left at the mercy of their Western creditors who wanted to destroy them. And, and that was the end. So that's when I realized that, you know, oil is, is really the most important artifact in an industrial economy. When things go wrong having to do with oil, that very possibly spells the end of the industrial experiment for a while. So that's the reason I started paying attention to it. A lot of people think that peak oil means high prices. Well, you're saying that the oil price was low? See, the Soviet Union was an oil exporter. The United States is an oil importer. 
So uh, the Soviet Union was destroyed by low oil prices. The United States is going to be destroyed by high oil prices. I see. So there's a distinction to be made between the high oil prices and the low oil prices in the Soviet Union because was the Soviet Union importing not as much as the United States is importing now? The Soviet Union was and Russia now still is the largest oil importer in the world and the largest oil producer in the world. The difference with the United States is that the United States is dependent on the outside world for 60% of its oil, which is 90% of the transportation fuels. Gotcha. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what it was like in Russia during this collapse period that you had a chance to, you know, tour around the country a little bit and see what it was like. Could you talk to us a little bit about what it was like during that time? Well, it, it went through a few stages. There was a, a stage of relative normalcy right before the Soviet collapse, and then there was a year when really nothing worked, and it was very hard to do very basic things like buy gasoline or buy food, find a place where you could get food. And then there was a period of sort of disaster capitalism where there was a lot of black market activity. There was a huge spike in crime, which didn't start out particularly organized, but by the mid-1990s, it was very tightly organized and eventually ingratiated its way into government and into the system as a whole. So a lot of the people that came up through the ranks as racketeers during the 1990s, they're running banks and doing very responsible-looking things. Society was turned upside down for a while, and, and now it's resurfaced right side up, but in a very different form and a very different state. Flawed in some ways, and and much better than what was before in, in various others. Right. And you mentioned that there was this period of the rise of the informal economy and rise of black markets and also crime. Did that start out as just shooting sprees or random one-off events and then start to look more and more organized over time? Oh, no. Well, basically, the whole black market thing in Russia, you know, it existed the entire time, but mostly it was just plugging up holes in, in the official economy the way it does here. But then Gorbachev tried to ban alcohol. He had this anti-alcoholism campaign running for a while. And so what that did was same thing that the prohibition did in the United States, which is, you know, drove alcohol production underground and created gigantic fortunes. So suddenly you had this class of underground millionaires in Russia and the people who were working for the government and these black marketeers kind of looked at each other and the people in the government thought, well, we, you know, we have power, but we don't have any money. And then the black marketeers looked at the government and said, well, we have lots of money, but we don't have any power. And then they kind of got together and decided, well, let's, let's just wreck the whole system, and, and then each side will, will get what it wants. So that's where it got started, but then it immediately you know, went completely off the rails and out of control. And the things that happened afterwards are basically things that nobody could possibly imagine. So when you came to the United States, you were in high school. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like coming to the United States from a different, totally different country and a place during a time that had some very harsh feelings for each other? What was it like in, in coming to the United States? Oh, the people here are just so clueless. People here, you know, they didn't know where these countries are. If you, if you, if you handed them a globe and said, well, where, where am I from? They'd have no idea. So it didn't really matter. There was some, you know, just kind of general xenophobia, you know, reactions against people who didn't seem like 
you know, they, they belonged or something like that. But generally, the impression that I get about the United States is that nobody knows enough to actually figure out who they're supposed to hate half the time. So it's, that makes it a safer place than most places in the world where everybody is completely on the ball all the time. The United States is a completely safe place because it's full of just completely clueless people who don't know anything at all. And how does that contrast to Russia, per se? Oh, in, in Russia right now, there's just a, an incredible hatred and suspicion of all foreigners. Part of that is, is the result of, of the, the experience of the privatization that went on. You know, a lot, a lot of it was influenced by Harvard economists like Jeffrey Sachs, who, uh, in spite of their best intentions, did a, a horrible, horrible thing and hurt a lot of people. Because basically they played into the hands of criminals by liberalizing the economy. So that's something that the Russians will not forgive anytime soon. Could you talk a little bit about what um, you did after high school and how that kind of shaped your view of the United States? Yeah, I, I worked a bunch of jobs. I, I did all sorts of different things. I, I ran a floor sanding business for a while with illegal immigrant labor. That was very interesting. I worked for a bank for a while, did corporate accounting. You know, I was responsible for the balance sheet. I'd had to add up to something like $13 billion. That was a lot of money at the time. That was before college. So I did that for a while. That, that got boring. And then I went to engineering school. Yeah. Um, and so all of these experiences kind of gave you different views on, on life in the United States. And then eventually you put together quite a bit of writing about peak oil and collapse and, and put out reinventing collapse. And so now that the U.S. is well on the road and more and more people are writing about collapse, what do you think the major signs of collapse that are becoming apparent uh, for, for many people? You talked at the start of the interview about how more people are just facing some of the same things that they've always faced in terms of hardship. It's just starting to trickle up a little bit into other classes in society. I think what's becoming apparent now is that there isn't really a solid story for what's going on. People will continue talking about how to stimulate the economy to produce growth. That's one of the narratives that's going on. Every time a politician opens his mouth, that's what comes out. And then if you look at it, well, you know, stimulating the economy involves going into debt. And, you know, the debt to GDP ratio is already at a level where it hurts growth. Everybody concedes that. And then if you look at how much, how quickly the country is going further and further into debt versus how much GDP growth that's producing, that's 2.5 to 1. So it's not a productive thing to do, to take on more debt in order to stimulate growth. So from that, we can assume that there's no more growth. But once we assume that, then we have to concede that all of these debts are going to go bad. And once they do, the global economy is going to be shut down because it'll be impossible to get a letter of credit processed to put cargo on a container ship. So th that's kind of the end for the global economy after that. And then if you look at what that means here, an economy that is really very dependent on imports and what happens when those imports dry up, well, it's not very long before it's lights out. And once it's lights out, then you don't really have access to your money, government doesn't work, transportation breaks down, etc. So we're not looking at like a, a nice, gentle slide. It's, it's going to be a few weeks of mayhem, and then nobody knows what's going on. You were talking about the constant rhetoric about finding new ways to grow the economy. And one of the new things that's been coming out recently has been all of these financial scandals that are coming to light. And so many new scandals are being 
uncovered and, and uh, shown. Why are they coming to light right now and why weren't they uncovered in the past? There, there are basically two things there. One is, suppose you have a lake and uh, the water is draining out of it. Um, well, that's when you discover that it's full of old tires and oil cans and, and oil drums and, and maybe a Model T, you know, sitting there and, and maybe a few corpses. Basically, as the water level drops, things get exposed. And that's what's happening now is, you know, kind of the blood is draining out of the economy. And then the other thing that, that is happening is a while ago, the people who are really at the commanding uh, heights level of the economy decided that laws don't apply to them. But then they have to have some way of settling scores, don't they? Amongst each other, Not, nothing having to do with us. So basically, there's a lot of kind of mafia shakeout going on right now where people are trying to figure out, you know, who's out, who's in, who's dead, who's in charge. And this has nothing to do with the rule of law. This is more like, you know, this this is new kind of mafia economics that's taking over. And right now, it's it's sort of like scandals and conversation and et cetera. And eventually, it'll get a little bit more violent, because it usually does. And, and what do those next steps look like in terms of how the financial elites kind of shake down their ranks? Right now, they're still in the mode of, uh, okay, I, I want all the money and you won't have any, but it's still about money. They're still fixated on the idea that money is a store of value, that, that financial paper it represents wealth. Now, once they realize that money is worthless, money is a useless artifact, and that the only thing that matters is personal relationships and things you have immediate control over, they'll have a nervous breakdown. And once they have that nervous breakdown, we're in a slightly different situation. My feeling is a lot of them will commit suicide. That's what typically what happens in a big financial collapse is the people who are the richest are the most susceptible to suicide because they're the most fragile psychologically. You know, you take a, your typical poor person and it's all a question of where am I going to get dinner? Where am I going to sleep tonight, right? Once you get to the very rich people and they don't get the first-class ticket. They have to go coach, right? And people are looking funny at them and, and making fun of them. They just crack, you know? They just completely lose it at that point. Because they're so wrapped up in the social construct of money and what it does for them? Yes, exactly. Their whole status is just eradicated, huh? Exactly. So it's like it's the twilight of the gods for them. For everybody else, it's like, okay, I'm broke. I was broke yesterday. I'll be broke tomorrow. But for them, it's it's this critical juncture where they just completely lose it. And I'm sure you saw examples of that kind of stuff during the breakup of the USSR. Well, no, I think I think the Russians started out pretty hardy. You know, everybody was poor, and uh, right now you have a lot of rich people in Russia. But well, a few of them are young enough to actually be that fragile, I suppose, at this point. But I didn't see any of that back then. So that's, I guess, a fundamental difference in societies. What's it like to, in the United States to see these kind of conversations being so openly discussed now about how illusionary that our financial system really is? I mean, you've been talking about this stuff for a really long time. Illusionary, I think, is the wrong term because this is the only financial system that this country will ever have. Once this one falls down, that'll be it. And so... One thing that people don't realize, people talk about reform, right? Get rid of the Federal Reserve or get rid of interest-based lending and let's, let's shift to local currency. And the thing that they realize is that they want access to, I don't know, Q-tips, right? 
And, and the thing that they don't realize is that the factory that makes Q-tips uses leased equipment that was purchased based on a loan. And that loan has to be paid, and that loan doesn't have a zero interest rate. So if you want your Q-tips, you have to go with the system that we have now. But if you eradicate the system, if you do anything to it, then the whole thing crumbles because it was created during a time of plenty, which is gone. It'll never come back. What we have now will keep going for a while, and then it will no longer exist, and that'll be it. So there's not going to be any kind of slow decline where other financial systems will jockey for placement in trying to take over the old one? Well, no. Basically, what happens is uh, one giant bank somewhere goes insolvent, and the government backing it is no longer able to keep up the pretense that, oh, we'll just issue a sovereign guaranteed credit, and that'll prop it up for a while. Because the problem isn't really, you know, it's not liquidity, it's solvency. And you can't make money out of garbage, which is what they've been doing for a while now. So once you have that, then all the banks around the world start hoarding cash. And they no longer grant letters of credit. So you can't put cargo on ships. So the next thing that happens after that is all of the supply chains around the world for all of the manufacturing processes stop working. Hospitals don't get supplied with pharmaceuticals. Fuel doesn't get supplied to, to fuel depots, so transportation grinds to a hold. And a little while after that, uh, the electric grid stops working in a lot of places. So after that, you have a situation where nobody can do anything. Not the government, not anybody. Maybe the army can do something to just superficially maintain order. And then the damage accelerates from that point on. It's a cascading effect. So things break down more and more and more. And at some point, you reach a point where there's no going back, where there's, there's no way to restore what was there before. So then we're in this brave new world where it's who you know within walking radius of where you live. And do you think most people don't really imagine the breakdown happening that way because they aren't aware of the reach of the financial system or the dynamics of the financial system into their daily lives? Is that really the core component? Most people don't realize why it is they can walk to a supermarket and scan an item and pay for it using you know, a swipey card. Most people don't understand what's behind that. Most people don't understand how fragile that whole thing is. It's actually quite resilient. You know, it can deal with little shocks like, you know, Argentina default, Russian default, Japanese tsunamis, you know, little things like that it can deal with. But at some point, a shock big enough to knock the system out completely out of balance will come along, and then there will be no way of restoring it. It's sort of like, suppose you have a, you know, a little saucer on your kitchen table and there's a shiny blue marble bouncing around on that saucer because you have earthquakes, right? You live in an earthquake zone. And you're looking at that marble and thinking, oh, everything is just completely stable because look, the marble is just bouncing around, right? You know, it's not, it's still in the saucer. Everything's fine. And then a chunk of the ceiling falls and smashes the saucer and the marble bounces away and goes out through a crack under the door and down the hallway and down the stairs and out the front door and down the street and down a storm drain. That's the sort of expected thing that people should expect but don't. I've been reading a lot of Greek newspapers and accounts of daily life in Greece as much as I can because their financial system and their economy really is in free fall. It's been contracting for several years now. And every single month, the level of contraction that they're expecting gets increased. There's more and more contraction. And exactly like you're saying, 
medicines aren't being delivered. I'm reading accounts of like older women who need prescription drugs wailing in pharmacies because they can't get them. What's going through your mind as you're seeing the development of the European debt crisis and the collapse of those uh, economies like Greece and Spain and Italy? One of those things is going to actually register. The funny thing about Greece is that Greece seriously does not matter. It's just that if they drop the pretense and concede that Greece is over as part of the Eurozone, then they have to have some kind of a workout procedure. They don't know what that is. They have no idea at all. And the other thing is that once they concede that it's over for Greece, then what is there to say that it's not over for Spain or Italy or Ireland? And once you concede that it's over for Spain, Italy, and Ireland, then what's there to stop you from conceding that it's over for the euro as a whole? And then you can kind of take that exponentially to anywhere you want, right? Well, then you're done. Then, then basically, no bank can clear anything anywhere because they don't know whether their car- counterparty is good. Nobody can put cargo on a ship because they don't know what the outlook will be once uh, the bill of landing is issued or whether it's even issued. The whole thing starts breaking down from that day on. There's basically a, a flash crash with no recovery. You mentioned the cargo on, on a ship. What are some of the key indicators that you track or that you follow that really clue you into where we are in this process? People make a big deal out of the, the Baltic Dry Index, which is showing that basically global commerce is, is slowing down. But that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. There's nothing to track. What people don't actually do is is look at how this thing will break down once it does, which doesn't really have anything to do with what it's doing today. Did you ever have a buddy who said, listen, hard, if you want to do some living, get a credit card to meet the monthly payment may be mighty hard, but you'll do a lot of living on a credit card. Sis, boom, diddle, sis, boom, bar. Yeah, you can do a lot of living on a credit card. Well, I mailed my application blank, and what do you know? I received my magic ducat not so long ago. Tain't easy keeping track of all the things that you buy when the bird behind the counter is a real nice guy. Sis, boom, diddle, diddle, sis, boom, bob. You can do a lot of living on a credit card. I went window shopping yesterday and did I goof? Bought a cute new compact car, I had a park on the roof. Don't sell me one more item or my ceiling will crash. Cause my attic's really loaded with my cashless trash. Sis boom diddle daddle, sis boom bob. Yeah, you can do a lot of living on a credit card. Why did the global economy collapse like a prim 19th century nun at the unexpected sight of a gentleman's danglers? <laughs> and why across the world did share prices go down faster than a buttered baby down a well-waxed water slide? <laughs> and I cannot begin to explain the amount of empirical research that went into that joke. But um. <laughs> You know, I've got, I've got two children, I can spare one. So, um, <laughs> but I think, I think the answer to those questions is that the whole of global economics is based on bullshit. 
It is based on figments and fictions and people essentially gambling on stuff that doesn't actually exist. And essentially what happened is that capitalism got overexcited in the aftermath of its points victory over communism <laughs> in the Cold War, in which it was helped by the fact that communism spent the entire fight standing in the corner punching itself in the face. <laughs> and, uh, oh, you like the Cold War boxing analogy, it's good. So, um, I know, I know you're very concerned about communism. It gets everywhere, communism gets... Uh, sperms are communists. Well, well, Stalinists, really. In the, only one of them gets to achieve anything and millions of them die for nothing. So, <laughs> but... Oh, mama, write it down. So, what happened is... Capitalism then got overexcited, waltzed into a casino and put the entire global economy on red whilst announcing to everyone, don't worry, I have got a system. And sadly that didn't work out and things have gone more tits up than Dolly Parton swimming backstroke. And I think we have to start learning lessons from this. We have to start... We can learn a very important lesson from the American mortgage sector. They seem to kick this whole thing off. A very important lesson. That lesson is that if you do lend a lot of money to people who have absolutely no way of paying that money back, then conceivably they might not pay that money back. Now... That is the kind of thing we can only learn by trial and error, isn't it? <laughs> and almost all the money in the world is borrowed. When you take $10 from your ATM, your bank will have borrowed it off another bank, who will have borrowed it off another bank, who will have borrowed it off a convincing-looking man in a suit, who will have borrowed it off the IMF, who will have borrowed it off Albert Pujols, and so on, and so on, and so on. So when you take your $10 from your ATM, what you are essentially getting is homeopathic money. It has barely a trace of the original cash left, but some absolute nutcases insist it still works exactly the same. So, <laughs> so it's easy to get pessimistic about this. I'm quite naturally a pessimistic man. I guess uh, in that respect, I'm a bit like a German vegetarian. I, I fear the worst. <clears throat> and, uh, but we need someone to blame for the economic states of the world. And the people don't blame the banks. Don't blame the politicians. It all comes down to the fact that we cannot afford pensions anymore. There are too many old people in the world staying not dead for longer and longer. So the people to blame, don't blame the banks, do not blame your politicians, don't blame the financial markets. The people to blame are medical scientists. Because, like Edward Jenner, developed vaccination in the early 19th century, enabled more and more people to live to pensionable age beyond what God clearly intended for them. <laughs> Louis Pasteur, dicking around with milk, dicking around with my f***ing tax bill, more like. <laughs> William Morton, developed anaesthesia in the mid-19th century, died in this very city at the economically responsible age of 48. Developed anaesthesia. You, you used to need to have real balls to have a life-saving operation. No any chance I can do it. And it goes beyond medical science. John Logie Baird invented television, gave old people a reason to carry on living. <laughs> Why would you die when just around the corner is another series of celebrity Stockholm Syndrome? Now I can't do no more living on a credit card. You old angel they call Gabriel, better blow your horn. Someone made a bad mistake up there to let me be born. Depart me back to heaven where life ain't so hard And they don't impose no limit on your credit card You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist And today we're speaking with Dmitry Orlov about the process of systemic breakdown Up in heaven there's no limit on your credit card Credit card, credit card, credit card Okay, so let's let's take all the things that you've said as facts. Let's take it a step forward. How do we 
maintain a population of 7 billion people on this planet when all the supplies that we need to live stop coming in? Well, who are we? I mean, I, I hear people talk about this all the time, and, and usually it's, it's some, some article that, that I'm, I'm reading by an environmentalist or a progressive, and they say things like, unless we blah, 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 or we have to blah, blah, blah. Then they propose things that then don't, don't happen. And then they go on and write another article saying the same thing. So my question to them is, what are you saying and why are you saying it? And going back to your question, how do we keep however many billion people that I don't personally know alive? I don't know. I don't know them. I've never met them. You tell them that they're on their own. What else can you do? You just kind of say, you guys are going to have to handle this on your own. This is the situation. If you don't make your own arrangements Sorry. Yeah. Well, you you can say a lot more things than that, but it doesn't actually address the problem as far as most people would would define it. It's not a question of fixing something. It's it's a question of giving people options or or maybe teaching them that some things matter more than others. And what I try to steer people towards is the understanding that it's not really what you do, it's 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 who you are. It it's what your assumptions are. It's what you expect of life. Those are the things that are subject to rapid change without, without notice. And if you're flexible enough in terms of your expectations, then you'll have a better time of it than if you expect things to remain quote-unquote normal based on what your life has been like so far. How do you break the news to people who are so used to trusting in government or governmental organizations that you know, there is no we out there to handle these problems, that it really is about you and your personal relationships and the supplies and skills that you have on hand, because so many people in especially developed world nations are just used to having government services to tackle their daily challenges or prop them up in ways they may never even see. How do you break that news to people? Well, again, you you have to uh, figure out why you'd want to do that to begin with. Is it because you expect them to do something useful as a result? Or are you just trying to bother them? With most people, you can't possibly expect them to react in any sort of a useful manner. So why even bother telling them? If, if they're people that you actually care about, then uh, it's, it's a long process that really depends on your force of personality and what you are willing to do for them on a personal level, because nothing else really matters anyway. Uh, but then your approach is, is likely to be very individualistic, very... Uh, you know, very highly attuned to what your relationship with that person is. You mentioned environmental organizations a moment ago, and a lot of environmental organizations are really talking about sustainability and trying to solve the sustainability problem, offering all kinds of ways to reduce material waste, you know, saving no to plastic bags and such. Is targeting consumerism the issue, and why do you think environmental organizations take it on so readily? It's an easy thing to make people feel guilty about. It's tokenism, really. It's just, uh, uh, hey, look, we could make this little thing, this little gesture, and then you will feel less guilty, feel better about yourself, and maybe give us money so we can continue doing that same thing. It's like buy nothing day. Well, what do you do the rest of the year? But really, the sort of training that people have to put themselves through, if they really want to make a go of it in the future, is just don't really use any consumer goods at all. See, See how far you get doing that. Short of that, you know, reduce your consumerist needs as much as possible. See how little money you can make and spend 
um, see how far you can go trying to drop out of the system and still feel like your life is worth living, you know, that you're not really suffering, that it's fulfilling on some level. And it's an interesting experiment for a lot of people, and for others, they won't even think about it. They'd rather die. And so I expect more of the same. You know, there will be a few people who will actually make a concerted effort to make a go of it, and many other people who just will basically sit around waiting for somebody to rescue them or feed them or something. And you mentioned that many people will just stop trying. Do you think that's going to be a theme across the world is just mass suicide? It depends. In a lot of places, uh, the people are just not really susceptible to suicide. They have this really basic connection with the people around them that makes them very, very sane and very non-suicidal no matter what happens. There are people all over the world who will um, more or less calmly starve or go extinct without much mayhem at all, without bloodshed, uh, and certainly without any suicide. And then you have uh, communities, mostly in the West, I would say, that are very highly individualistic and where people think that it's, you know, they're in it for themselves and, and they have to look out for number one, etc. What they don't realize is that they think they're individualistic, but they're very influenced by surrounding society in terms of their expectations and their sense of self-worth. And so they're much more likely to commit suicide. And then in other parts of the world and everywhere in the military, you have people who really don't put any value on their own life. They're willing to die heroically, or they just don't really care. And they tend to kill themselves quite a bit. So there are these pockets of, you know, populations that are much more likely to commit suicide than the rest of humanity. And most of humanity is fairly, you know, neutral in terms of just slowly going extinct, but they're not going to kill themselves. So you yourself um, live on a sailboat, and you mentioned that skills and training are really, really important to be successful in this new post-economy world. Um, do you have any other skill sets that you recommend people to, to learn and start understanding so they can survive? Well, it's, it's really whatever you need. But uh, one thing that I've discovered is, is that the civilized people expect food to be a certain thing, wrapped in plastic, refrigerated, and a certain thing that they're used to eating. And so that's a little bit different from, you know, what I grew up with, which is everybody knows the entire universe of edible things out there, and they're not very squeamish or picky. So that's something that I would recommend to people is like, look, look for fairly unlikely sources of food and figure out everything edible in your environment. And another thing is, this has been sort of something I've, I've realized a long time ago, but recently I read and reviewed a book that made, made a lot of sense to me, which is people here have this division into wilderness and the, the space that they inhabit. And they wander out into what I consider the real world, thinking that it's an alien environment, which is very strange to me. I don't know where that set of cultural blinders came from. You know, the, the whole planet is habitable. If you know what you're doing, you can survive in any stretch of woods anywhere in the world by eating insects and bark. And so if people really tried, they could lose who they've been. They could sort of abandon their, their civilized way of being long enough to figure out how they can survive. Since 2008, there was a giant financial crash and the banks have been propped up by sovereign debt loads continually increasing. 
you were writing about the potential for collapse well before it happened. Has there been anything that's happened since then that really surprised you in the way that governments have responded and moved forward from that crisis? Well, to begin with, I didn't realize the extent to which the governments don't really exist anymore. There's really very few sovereign nations left on Earth, and they're labeled as the enemy. So that would be Iran, that would be North Korea. And then there are a lot of defunct states, like Somalia, for instance, that are posted off-limits. They're a no-go zone. Uh, Afghanistan is probably going to become one of those next year. And uh, Syria used to be a so- sort of sovereign state, but not, not so much anymore, given what's going on there. Um, but, but then the rest of the countries, they're not really nation-states anymore because they're completely beholden to financial interests. So the countries that we have are exactly as fragile as the financial system. That is not something that I initially realized. I knew that there was a lot of corruption. I, I knew that there was a lot of inbreeding between the financial and the political elites. But I didn't realize that you know the nation state as such is pretty much gone. That basically what we want is a really smooth passage from the sort of uh, completely undermined superficial state controlled by the financial elite to a defunct state. What we don't want is to go through a stage of being a weak state that can be preyed upon by all sorts of interests, like Mexico, for instance. A weak state is a state that makes things illegal but can't enforce the laws, which is what we see everywhere, and that causes a great deal of bloodshed. A defunct state is a, is a state which no outsider can actually blunder into and expect to get a reasonable result. What we've seen a lot in Mexico is uh, large drug uh, running gang cartels, taking a large part of the economy over. Do we see those cartels, as you mentioned, Mexico preying on the United States, do you see those uh, cartels kind of coming up and, and taking a larger part of, of the United States over? Is that something that might happen? I think the drug cartels are reasonably well positioned to start a, a, an alternative, more competitive way of doing things in the United States, because I, I don't see you know, the, the officialdom in the United States actually being able to provide the people here with a survivable alternative given all of the rules they have. If you, if you look at really ridiculous rules like zoning, for instance, what you're allowed to do with any given piece of land, and the amount of official nonsense that you have to go through to do really basic things like grow food where you live, collect rainwater, things like that, various other forms of regulation. If, if you look at that, and you compare going through the lawful channels to gain permission to do something versus hiring some thugs to basically annihilate whoever gets in their way, then hiring the thugs is actually a competitive solution. It saves you money. So that's the reason that sort of way of doing things will win. That's what I saw in Russia in the 90s. Is, you know, the, the organized crime became a competitive alternative to doing things the legal way, because people weren't doing very well and they needed to survive, and the government was too expensive. So basically, if you don't pay your property tax, some guys show up with AK-47s and then you don't have to worry about ever paying your property tax again. Well, it's not really like that. It's just you pay your property tax to somebody else, uh, but you only pay half of it, and then they maybe go and talk to somebody so that they don't bother you. It's more like self-government. It's not an official system of government. It's, It's just that Some people are more adept than others in in using violence in constructive ways without resorting to unnecessary violence. 
things get messy when the government really starts to fight back. The thing that's really destructive is having a government that will stop at nothing to make a point that they have the monopoly on violence. You know, that's the sort of thing that happened in Mexico, and it's the sort of thing that happens in the United States a lot. But provided that, you know, the, the government officials actually, you know, know who butters their bread and are willing to accept the best deal they can get, then things can be worked out. Ideal situation for both sides if the government just kind of rolls over and lets the unofficial government kind of take its place. It doesn't have to roll over completely. One of the things the government can do is partially privatize and, and offer private services for people who pay extra. So that's been the pattern in Russia and in a lot of places in the world. People call it corruption, but it's really sort of a pay-as-you-go scheme. You know, uh, the tax base isn't there to support the full set of government services. So, you know, the government services can be available for whoever can afford them. So there's really a continuum. But the basic idea that there's one set of rules that applies to everyone, that's the thing that's not really workable. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening in Greece right now. There's a lot of police departments that can't fund their operations, so they're essentially saying, hey, if you want a police boat detail, pay us you know, 70 euros for a day, and we'll send a police boat out. Well, yes, every, every Russian police department has a unit that is for hire. That's legal and official, and that's how it works. Living in the United States and seeing different parts of the United States, what have been your thoughts as you've traveled around the United States about the culture and about the people that live there? What are some of the best places and worst places that you've been? I've been looking for a, a reasonable place in the United States for a really long time. I haven't found it yet. So my alternative is to live on a boat because different set of rules applies when you're on the water. There's basically this huge scheme to rob people by charging them exorbitant amounts of money for a place to live. That, that is across the board in the United States. But if you don't have an actual toehold on land, if you're on water, then um, they can't rob you, strangely enough. It's, it's a loophole that I found, and it's a pleasant lifestyle, so that's what I, why I've been doing it. But every time I look at settling down somewhere, I was just recently looking into buying land in a, in a small town, you know, there isn't really a lot going on there, and it's doing poorly, and a lot of people there are, su are suffering, and they have a lot of property for sale. But just wait till you buy that property. The number of regulations, and if you want to do anything reasonable, you have to get a zoning variance. And you have to get a permit for every last thing. And it's, it's just like, it's the silly little town hall, but if you want to do anything, they're the giant roadblock because they have these books of rules and standards and and all kinds of ridiculousness, and, and you drive around town, and yes, there are houses falling in, and, and the people who are living there, they don't have any money. And yet, if you want to do the right thing, forget it. It is kind of hard, though, to grow plants on a sailboat, is it not? There are lots of places on land that you can only get to using a sailboat, where it's very reasonable to grow plants. So, I guess a logical question to ask, if saying that you don't really like living in the United States or don't like living with the rules that exist now is why of all the places do you still live here? Because it doesn't matter where in the world you live on a sailboat with an internet connection. Mm. It's as simple as that. What parts about the United States do you enjoy? Where I am now, I, I like my neighbors and I have some friends here and it's comfortable and it gets cold during the winter. So um, for the winter, I would prefer to go south. But 
really, life on a sailboat is a little different in that you're not constrained in your location. It's like, why am I here? Well, because I'm here, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be here tomorrow. And so do you see in the future more of a nomadic lifestyle um, as things break down? Using the word nomadic kind of uh, makes you a certain kind of a person, I suppose. It's better not to be pegged as anything at all. But the whole point is that I don't, I'm in a situation where I don't really have to think about it very hard. So a lot of people may hear the kind of steps of, of breakdown that, that you were describing where everything just kind of goes dark over a period of a few weeks because all of these contracts stop being fulfilled. And they might say, well, you know, what if you informed everybody and all of these social movements had the right kind of information about how dire our predicament is? Do you think that if people really had information about how this could happen and break down that they could really do anything about it? Or do you think that all of this is kind of just already in the cards in many ways and it's just going to play out over the next months, years, whatever it may be. If, if you look at the social movements, you know, the, the Occupy movement was kind of interesting. Maybe it still is, but not much happening. But the interesting thing about the Occupy movement is that, you know, in Zuccotti Park, they all had to wait in line to go urinate at Burger King. And so the whole movement really depended on Burger King, allowing them to go urinate in their toilets. Unlike the uh, New York Police Department horses, who have permission to urinate right on the sidewalk. So the protesters have fewer rights than horses, and they didn't actually increase the number of rights that they have as a result of that entire experience. So they didn't actually win anything. They probably did have a positive experience in, in terms of standing up and being counted and realizing that there are quite a few of them. But there isn't really any indication that what they set out to do actually had any effect. What would you say to people who are just now figuring out the systemic problems we face? Many people have been preparing for quite a few years, and now that the financial, economic, and energy problems that you've been writing about have really started showing up in ways that can't be ignored, is it too late to prepare, or is it never too late to prepare? Well, I think preparing is, is probably borderline useful. The thing that people don't realize is that the sort of person they are right now, if they have the, the leisure, if they have the free time, the access to actually explore these subjects and um, you know, become alarmed by what's going on, that sort of person doesn't necessarily stand much of a chance. And the sort of person that does stand a chance is the sort of person who really couldn't give a damn about any of this stuff because they're too busy surviving as it is. So there's a bit of a disconnect there in terms of uh, the sort of person who deliberately goes out and seeks out information on these topics and has lots of free time and access to do so, and the sort of person who is busy surviving and will be busy surviving no matter what happens. So the, the, the point that I want to get across is you have to become a different person. It's not a question of preparing based on who you are today. You have to prepare to become somebody else. So people who are poor or maybe not know anything about peak oil, who are just struggling to survive or just decided to check out society and are wandering through the forest and living off the land would potentially stand a better chance than someone who lives a middle class or suburban lifestyle in the United States and starts learning about all this stuff? Uh, yes. If, if you wander out into the wilderness somewhere, you find out that there are people kind of living under the radar all over the place, that every little ecological 
niche is pretty much packed with people who know how to take advantage of the environment. So it's a bit of a disadvantage. It's better if you head out there having some skills that you can apply within that sort of situation, but that varies on, on where you are and what people are willing to accept. I think one universal is no matter where you go, people are willing to be entertained. And in a lot of places, they'll feed you for it. So that's something people should keep in mind. So learning how to play a musical instrument or do a dance or sing a song is probably going to help you in the long term. Well, that gets kind of hokey after a while. But if you start out by telling stories, that's a good start. Yeah, storytelling is one of the oldest human traditions ever, yeah. right? Yeah, you can, you can pretty much go around blowing people's minds and they'll feed you for it. Um, so you're a professional engineer and you work in an office. What's it like to talk around the water cooler? Do you have conversations with your coworkers? What, what do you guys talk about? Nothing related to what we've been talking about, that's for sure. And if you ever brought up these subjects at work, what do you think people would say to you? I have no idea, but I'm not very curious about it for obvious reasons. Yeah, it's just, you get shut down real fast, I suppose. Oh, even if you don't, I mean, I'm there to get something done, right? I'm not there to uh, elucidate things not related to my job function. Sure. But I guess if some guy came up to you and said, hey, I saw your book and wanted to talk to you about it like we're doing right now, you would, you'd be open to that, right? After work, over a beer. I, I wanted to ask about kind of some of the, the mainstream news that's been coming out recently. Are you seeing views that were once classified as like doomer views now entering the mainstream at all, or at least being denied by the mainstream, at least being addressed in some way? I think that Basically, there's a, a, a mindset within the media, which is that there's the important operative narrative that they're basically charged with conveying using the public airways. And then to make it interesting, they have to find crazy people because half the audience is crazy. They know that. So they try to look for the right kind of crazy, the right kind of insanity. Like somebody who thinks they're Jesus Christ, that's not good, right? That's bad, right? But then somebody who used to work for the CIA, but is suddenly spouting conspiracy theories, that's a great bunch of fun, you know? So they're really looking for a human interest angle. They're not looking to actually explain to people what's going on. So the way these things leak out is because certain people think that they can get their message across by going to the official media and getting interviews, etc. But really, they're just being clowns because the official media is there to milk them for the human interest. The official media is there to basically put them on exhibit as a freak and then get some recognition for letting something edgy leak out, but compromising it at the same time. Is that the same reason that more professors and educated people don't talk about these things in school? Probably a different reason. In academia, basically, a lot of people have to be very, very careful. There are very few people who don't have to be careful in the academia. Basically, the ones who can say whatever they want are tenured faculty not attached to any grant on their way to retirement. That's it. Everybody else has to watch what they say. And those people already have done their academic teaching and they're on their way out. They're ready for retirement. It's, it's a personal predilection. Some people get a kick out of you know, speaking the truth. Actually, coincidentally, a lot of the people we speak to on our show are old tenured professors who are on their way towards retirement We talk about <laughs> the dire predicament of collapse. So it's definitely true. Um, you're working on writing about the five stages of collapse now. And could you trace some of those five stages out for us and 
talk a little bit about how we're seeing them play out right now. Yeah, I wish I didn't call them stages because they're all going to be coincidental. But I, I think it's still uh, it's reasonable to tease them apart just as mental constructs. But financial collapse is is basically all the stuff having to do with the financial system being rigged to blow as soon as economic growth stops or shortly thereafter. And then political collapse has to do with the hollowing out of the nation state around the world. Uh, The fact that financial interests now run governments almost directly. You know, both of the presidential candidates in the United States are basically Goldman Sachs candidates. They'll never do anything against the banks. And there's nothing that they can do. And so what that means is that when the financial institutions go poof, the governments go poof as well. And then commercial collapse has to do with the fact that all of the supply chains around the world for all of the consumer goods and and the energy resources that we depend on, all of that has been globalized. And at some point, a tipping point will come when suddenly global commerce grinds to a standstill because of mostly financial and political problems, and then there's no way to reconstitute it. And then social collapse really has to do with... um, whether there's a a tribe that can take care of you and what happens if there isn't. What fallback, if any, do people have? And then cultural collapse really has to do with what it means to be a human in in this context. Where once humanity is, where does one make a stand when all of these other things fail or doesn't? And so I've been doing a lot of research. I have access to a really good research library. So I've been going there a lot and going through stacks of books and Everything from anthropology to psychology to history to economics and everything in between, because it's a very, very interdisciplinary book. I can't imagine a more interdisciplinary title than the one I'm working on. So that's a really good thing that I'm not doing it in, in, in the context of any kind of uh, an institution of higher learning. I just have a publisher because they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But it's been very interesting. And what is it that you're looking for in all of these different fields, just different ways that humans have reacted to difficult situations over time or the way that they process it as it moves on? Well, no, I, it's more, in each case, my approach is to, to ask a, a what-if question. What happens if? And then it turns out that one discipline or another will have one or two researchers from decades past, some of them, and some of the research is more recent, who actually offer a clue, who actually looked at this little pocket of interesting stuff that I'm driving at. What happens if this happens? Well, you know, some researcher actually spent some amount of time with an African tribe that was going through cultural collapse. So that was interesting to me. And some of the other things that I explored were things that I had some experience with, but other people had much more. So their experience is certainly useful. Like there'll be an article on the Russian mafia And it's an absolutely fascinating subject. I I really enjoyed researching it because it's such, you know, a microcosm of economic evolution that went on during, you know, a 10-year period that culminated in the creation of the, the modern Russian state. So that was a very interesting thing to explore. People working right now, uh, you know, they might have retirement funds, they might have money in the bank. What should they be doing with that, that cash that they have laying around? Should they be putting that into into survival gear, buying water filters, converting to gold, to guns? What should they be doing with that cash that they have? There is a, um, an intergenerational problem that people have, which is older generations have investments and savings and younger generations have debt. And in some cases, they're even living under the same roof because the younger people can't even afford to move out. 
So what that really means is that they have the financial system as a middleman robbing them. So what a lot of people can do is just definancialize their existence. Cash out your savings, use that across the entire family to get rid of debt, where the entire family works as a single economic unit. Basically, make your family bank and make it work like that. I think if a lot of people thought in those terms, it would be helpful. Get out of money. That's the whole point is, you know, just don't really depend on financial institutions at all. One of the things that, you know, I think people should really look at is a lot of people still have retirement funds, private retirement funds, and they've been doing really badly for a number of years. They're going to do even worse. So whatever you can do to get out of that, basically whatever you can do to make it so you can live without any financial outlay day to day, that's a step in the right direction. I was wondering what changes you've seen in the overall movement of people who've been becoming aware and following peak oil. What has it been like watching that group change over time? I think it's stagnated. In spite of all the quote-unquote official recognition that peak oil has received, it's received a lot more exposure. But I think there's this basic problem, which is people within the movement can't actually get the idea across of what it means for this to be over. And then people outside the movement can't countenance the idea of this being over. So it's a really this, it's a hard concept to wrap your mind around for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. It's it just uh, it's uh, basically a conversation stopper. So there's a, a small number of people. It's it's grown considerably, but it's still small. It's uh, you know less than one percent of people who are actually clued in, and then an even smaller number of those people are actually in any sort of a position to do anything about it on the on the level of their personal lives. Some people will say to me, you know, we've been saying fiat money is an illusion and money has been an illusion for so many years. Um, what's keeping central banks from just continually printing money and propping the whole system up? Why does it have to fall apart? I've, people have said that to me. What would your response be to that? If there's more money in the economy than the goods and services that money is supposed to be able to afford, then money stops being a store of value. It remains a medium of exchange for a short period of time. But uh, what people try to do at that point is try to get out of money. And as soon as they try to get out of money, what happens is they call in a lot of their investments. They try to cash them in. And then they try to shift that into things that are outside of the economy. that are basically, you know, sidelines that are a gold bullion that they're sitting on or, you know, bags of rice or, or something that they think they can sell later on. So what that does is it bankrupts the system instantly. And then it doesn't matter how much money the, the central bank prints. Because basically, when the central bank prints money, without there being any economic growth to sop it up, the bank is undermining the one thing it has going for it, which is the ability to print money. So once that gets to a certain point, then printing more money becomes rather counterproductive. Is there any emotional attachment to what society looks like afterwards? Well, now I've been doing this for a while. You can't be emotional about collapse and continue to study it. That, that is a prescription for not being a very happy person. So no, there's absolutely no emotional reaction to any of this whatsoever. I think that you know, people should really work it through their heads that there aren't any technological solutions. There is no fix, as James Kunstler has been saying in his last book, which I liked. Basically, this is a predicament. This is uh, something that you have to accept for what it is. What we're facing is a, you know, a very different reality. How can people find out more about your books and your website? Is there, is, there, is there anything that you'd like to talk about? 
Well, the book is going to be out next June, and then I'll probably go on tour and give lectures, provided people invite me. But I'll be available to do that next summer. And uh, until then, there's my blog, which I update every Tuesday. usually try to write up an article for, for Tuesday. And uh, a few thousand people show up every Tuesday, which is a lot of fun. Let's say you wake up one day in, in the next year or two, and there's, you know, suddenly what you were talking about starts happening. Uh, all those contracts for shipments stop being fulfilled. There's major commercial item and food shortages. The stock market, the Dow Jones is off 1,500 points in one day. What's your reaction to that? And what are those next steps right after? I think I'd wait a few days and see how things go and then make my decision based on that. I might actually, you know, go for a bike ride, like a multi-day extended bike ride and take my camera along and take pictures of people and places and figure out what happens and have an interesting time. Or if things get out of hand and violent and, you know, federal troops are moving in, etc., then I'll probably uh, weigh anchor and find some quiet anchorage somewhere and then wait it out there and then maybe come back later on and see what's going on. But I would bide my time. And do you think that after all of the kind of chaos, the realization of a lot of people that society's breaking down, what do you think uh, emerges after that? Is it just anybody's guess? Is it anybody's game completely up in the cards? Or are there any things that you've seen in your research that point towards what it could look like? There'll be a lot of confused people kind of getting hurt because they expect things to work the same way as they worked before but now they work in a completely different way. And then there will be a lot of people who are just basically trying to uh, assert authority, not in in any official capacity, just to get things going. And some of them will succeed and some won't. But it'll be a different society taking shape. And that is actually, you know, both dangerous and interesting to watch. So that closes out our interview with Dmitry Orlov in talking about major bank fails backed by a sovereign nation. That sovereign nation has lost all legitimacy, and then the whole system just starts unwinding. And Seth, you know, he was talking about how there's a lot of people who are struggling. They're fighting against unemployment, against underemployment, against the prospect that they can't find jobs or pay off the debt that they've accumulated. And he brought up the point that a lot of people don't know what it is that they're really looking at. They don't know that there's this greater trend of energy that's been fueling the economic growth of society. And they don't really understand that because we've depleted that energy, we're really at the peak. We're on the way down. And we're not even at the peak anymore. We The peak was many years ago. It's pretty much consensus now that the peak was in 2005, 2006 range. And now we're just on a plateau 
and soon declining for the extraction rate of conventional oil. And so it's no wonder that economies in Europe are unwinding and the U.S. economy is stagnating. So Seth, in your own life and the people you talk to, how do they deal with these economic megatrends that people are facing? Do they really see this greater collapse trend playing out or do they think it's, you know, the Obama administration that's to blame or something like that? That's interesting that you bring up the Obama administration, Justin, because having just concluded the Democratic National Convention here in Charlotte, North Carolina, it's just incredible to me that so many people are still caught up in the two-party capitalistic economic paradigms in which we live. Each one of the candidates, no matter what party they are, talk about more jobs, how they're going to bring more jobs to the community, how how they're going to be helping people, how they're going to be going back to business as usual. When the real question here is, how can we even possibly go back to business as usual? Because the whole game has changed. Never before have we had a situation the way it is right now. There's nothing to look back on. You know, there's no Roman times we can look back on and say, oh, that was a time when there was uh, increased globalization and all the jobs went to another country. And, you know, the increased amount of technological communication has made it so possible for people all over the world to talk to each other in instantaneously. This is a situation, an, an unprecedented situation. And to get to your point, Justin, the way that people are reacting is pretty much putting their heads in the ground and kind of humming and trying not to pay attention to the fact that people all around their country are looking for jobs or underemployed or living at home with their parents. People that are graduating from college right now are not able to find the employment they've been they've been promised. People who have been working their whole lives are getting laid off. And, you know, it's they're becoming lost under the carpet of unemployment. Now, that 9% that we see as unemployment rates doesn't really take into consideration all those people who have stopped looking for jobs or just have gone off the grid. And it's a really, really sad time right now for this country where we can't even see what's actually happening in front of us. And we look to these these men who dress up in suits and tell us that everything's just going to be okay if we can elect them as president, when in reality, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and I didn't get a chance to watch too much of the Democratic or Republican National Convention, but the parts I saw of both looked basically the same. They were both making the same promises and saying, you know, we're going to return to growth, we're going to return jobs, and, you know, maybe they have slightly different strategies, but that's really the dialogue that we're at. And on Friday, September the 7th, the latest job report numbers came out, and 368,000 people dropped out of the labor force in the United States. That means that Wow, that's incredible. Slightly under 89 million people of the United States, a country of slightly over 300 million people, are not in the labor force. You're starting to talk about a third of the U.S. population not in the labor force. And in one month, 368,000 dropped out. Where did they go? That's Where did they go? Yeah. But the economic collapse that we've been talking about for many Uh, of our episodes on the show and that we talked about back at the beginning of the year has really been happening throughout this entire year of 2012. You look at the rate of unemployment increases in places like Greece, it's up 1% in a month. It's up to 24.4%. You're just almost to the point where one in four people are unemployed. There's bank runs in Spain. There's now more deposit outflows from Spain than during the um, Southeast Asian crisis during the 90s. In Spain, there's been a three-month capital outflow of 52.3% of GDP. 
Holy half cow. their GDP in money has flown out of their country in just <laughs> where three is months. it going? It must be going to the bank of mattress. <laughs> it's going to the first national bank of mattress on capital flight airlines is, is what it's doing. And what's really incredible is the resilience of the global system in the ability to maintain a semblance of normalcy when you see how fast these things are falling off. And in my view, I don't really see any reason why that's going to change anytime soon. Why doesn't it just fall apart? Why doesn't it break when half of the GDP leaves the country? Well, the situation in North America, as bad as it is, is not as dire as it is in Greece and Spain for many reasons that we've covered on our show and that we've talked about with previous guests. And I mean... Um, you know, in Italy, they're paying nine dollars, nine U.S. dollars a gallon for gasoline. They're paying a euro ninety-three, or almost two euros a liter. So that's really insane. And can you imagine how different life, how much life in the United States would change if gasoline was seven dollars a gallon or eight dollars a gallon? And even though Italy is less dependent on gasoline because of the arrangement of their cities and everything than maybe the United States, it still has a ripple effect through society. And when you see, for, for an ex another example, just to throw a number out there, new cars sales in India fell 20% in August. I mean, that's insane to see, you know, double digit drops in consumer behavior. In Vancouver, British Columbia, for example, we had a 20% drop in new home sales in one month versus the previous month. In, in one month, it fell 20, more than 20%. And what you're seeing is the level of contraction and the rate of velocity flow of money. It's actually worse than it was during the Great Depression. If you look at the velocity of, of M2, the money supply, it's actually lower than it was during the Great Depression because of the dynamics we've discussed with people like Steve Keen that there's so much debt in the world, private debt, not even the amount of debt that's held by governments, that the global economy is just freezing up and I don't see anything that's going to change this trend. And what's it going to look like in a year when China's only growing, you know, 4% or something like that and not, and all of their municipalities aren't able to pay back loans or if interest rates happen to increase on U.S. treasuries, if interest rates go up to their long-term average of 5% in the United States on the current level of $16 trillion in debt, that the United States would be spending about 40% of its federal budget on just interest payments alone. You're talking about the level of what we already spend on the military, we'd just be spending on interest on the debt. So the next few years are going to be pretty interesting economically, to say the least. So Justin, what is the responsibility of the media in all this? Do they have to be shouting this from the rooftops? Where do they fall into this whole system? Do they is, Are we going to start seeing figures stepping up in politics that are just going to start shouting out this stuff and saying, hey, we are in this situation that needs to be changed. If not, we're done. Well, you already see the opposition starting to form somewhat politically. There's people like Paul Ryan on the Republican side who are shouting about the federal deficit, but they don't really understand the fundamentals, and they don't understand the role that if there is no government role in propping up the economy, the whole thing's just going to fall apart. And Dmitry Orlov said himself, he didn't realize how beholden that governments were to the financial sector. You look at uh, economies in Europe and Germany desperately 
doesn't want to transfer its entire GDP to Italy and Spain and Greece. But they're going to do it because if they don't, the whole system's going to fall apart. Germany is just as much to blame in the situation as Greece because having been to Greece and having seen that country, of course, it was a year ago, and I'm sure maybe it was different when they joined the Euro. But if Germany did any background checks, they would have known that Greece was not the kind of country that you want to share a currency with. But you, you see the European Central Bank, and now they're going to step up unlimited bond purchases to drive the rates in these countries down. And that just goes to show you that the financial system is a series of agreements that everybody is capable of changing and changing around if the system gets dire enough up to a point. And that's why it's going to take this thing quite a while to play out, because even though the actual economy is contracting at stunning rates, the you know, S&P and all of these major stock market indices are hitting stunning highs because things should be a lot worse than they really are. A lot of traders are reacting to these economic numbers and saying, wow, this is bad, but it's in many ways not as bad as we thought it'd be. You know, everything's not disintegrating. So why not invest? Why not buy? And there's tremendous ways that corporations can shift the way that they employ people. For example, a lot of people who used to have full jobs with benefits have been moved over to contract positions with no benefits and with even more limited hours. And those are ways that corporations can continue to show profitability, even though they're growth is slowing or contracting. And we spoke a few episodes ago about a piece talking about just because capitalism doesn't have growth, that doesn't mean it's going to go away. And that's totally what we're seeing. Just because growth is slowing and in a few years, if the United States is contracting at a few percent a year and embroiled in a massive debt crisis like that of Greece, except even bigger, um, there's no reason to think that capitalism is just going to go away. There's still going to be major corporations and they're still going to find ways to get profits. And that just means that the ways they're going to get profits are probably going to be even more inhumane than they already do. Even more draconian? Yeah, even more draconian. So I wanted to hit on one thing. Dmitry Oilov has been talking about the consequences of peak oil for a long time. And it's continually shocking to me at the poor level of literacy that people have around the issue of peak oil. I was just in a room with a lot of really intelligent people, all aspiring environmental and energy policy people. And a lot of them don't think that one, peak oil is an issue, or two, some of them don't even think that it's occurring or even happening. And that just blows me away that there's so much information and so many people who have been writing about the various aspects of peak oil, but because of shale gas or because of fracking, suddenly people think that peak oil is not an issue at all. Or people. But does it really surprise you, though? I mean, we just we were just talking about the Democratic National Convention, where there's whole groups of people who have no idea what's going on, and they look to to their leaders who just don't even inform them. If you look to the media; they do, doesn't inform them. How how could they know if they don't listen to shows that explain this kind of stuff in detail? How do they know this kind of stuff if they watch? American Idol and they watch these reality television shows, there's no way for them to find out. It shouldn't really surprise you, I'd say. Yeah, no, you're right. And the media does a really poor job of covering anything that's related to peak oil or peak energy issues. And so people just aren't even able to form opinions about it unless they go to tremendous amounts of work on their own to, uh, to learn about it. But uh, I thought it was interesting that Dmitry Orlov brought up the role of underground commerce and the way that organized crime starts to 
build this competitive advantage. And we're going to be getting into that in our next episode with the author of The Stealth of Nations. And we're going to be talking to him about the global informal economy. So just because the formal economy is collapsing, that doesn't mean that there's going to be no economy. There's still going to be economy. People are still going to have demands and there's still going to be a lot of supply. It's just not going to look anything like how it does now. So we'll get into that more next episode. But there are numerous people who have seen the fragility of the global system and they've started to withdraw themselves, some of them specifically for that reason or some of them for cultural or other reasons. And so that's why we're speaking with Lucas Folia, a photographer who is joining us from San Francisco today to talk a little bit about what it was like to meet so many people who've been living off the grid. Now where do we go? From here it's packed to the brim in a I grew up with my extended family on a small farm in the suburbs of New York City, about 30 miles from Manhattan. And while malls and supermarkets developed around us, we heated our house with wood, farmed and canned our food, and bartered the plants we grew for everything from shoes to dental work. But while my family followed many of the principles of the Back to the Land movement, by the time I was 18, we owned three tractors, four cars, and five computers. The mixture of these things into our otherwise rustic life made me curious to see what a completely self-sufficient way of living might look like. In 2006, I put a bed in the back of a minivan and went to visit a friend of my family whose name was Doug Elliott, and he's a naturalist and folklorist living in North Carolina. He and his family introduced me to everyone else I photographed for the project. So most of the people that you photographed are friends of friends or uh, you knew them through some friends? Everyone I photographed in the book is a family friend or a friend of a family friend. Wow, that must have given you a lot of intimate connections with them. I find that once someone trusts me, they introduce me to their friends and their friends trust me also. We'll get into this a little bit in a minute, the reasons why these people are living off the grid and why they're pulling away from society. But it seems like perhaps for some of them, it may be because of distrust of government or distrust of the way that society is going. And perhaps they wouldn't want to be, you know, their stories to be told. Did you run into any of that when you were carrying out this project? It varied between families and communities. Some people were, were trying to be as off the map as they could be. And other communities had websites that they updated regularly. I don't think any of the communities I visited would have welcomed me in the same way had I not come in with an introduction from someone else who they knew already. So I know that it's really, really tough to get completely off the grid. Um, how, how dependent are they, these people that you photographed, on the interconnected dependencies that define civilization? All the people in my photographs are working to maintain a self-sufficient lifestyle, one that involves a relatively radical independence. But no one I found lived in complete isolation from the mainstream. Many of the people I photographed have websites that they update on laptop computers and cell phones that they charge on car batteries or solar panels. So they don't wholly reject the modern world, and they do in some ways stay connected to it, but rather they step away from it and choose the parts that they want to bring with them. When I first started the project, I went out looking for an absolute, people who were living completely independently and self-sufficiently, and I didn't find that. 
But I also realized in the process of photographing and befriending the people I was photographing that their intention wasn't to, to make an absolute. It was to live comfortably as close to their ideals as they could. And so you were just mentioning about these ideas that you had to find these absolutes. How did your preconceived notions of living off the grid change as you started to find these people and as you started to hear their reasons for doing so? I started by calling people I knew and going to visit people I knew and asking about other people. But when I showed up to photograph, I wasn't interested in making someone into something that they're not. I just wanted to see how people lived. So the notion changed as soon as I drove up the driveway or hiked into the, into the camp where people were living. That's often the way that these stories kind of go. I mean, you come up with, you start with one story and you end up with one that's totally different. Do you have any that kind of stick out in your mind as, as kind of falling into that category? First time I went to visit Wild Roots community, at that point there were five or ten people living on the edge of National Forest in North Carolina. And they had built bark wigwams from poplar trees on that la on the land, and they were foraging a lot of their food. But then the first week I was visiting, they took me into town, we picked up lattes at the local cafe, and they went dumpster diving. My presumption going in was that there would be hard and fast rules for, for living in a community or living self-sufficiently. And instead, they said they just wanted to live comfortably and live as close to their values as they could. So you talked to a lot of people during this project. I was wondering if you found any similarities between the people that you, you spoke to. Was there any kind of themes that ran throughout this project? People varied in their lifestyles. In the book, there are over, are over a dozen different families and communities pictured. But what everyone has in common is a desire for self-sufficiency. So they have, there's a connection to the land they live on. For some people, there were environmental concerns, worried about global warming, worried about living with as, as, as small an ecological footprint as possible. For other communities, there were religious beliefs that motivated them. Uh, the idea that following the principles of the Bible, they had to be good stewards of the land or live as close to the land as possible and as simply as possible. And other families were responding to the beginnings of the economic recession and predicting an economic collapse. Because these people are striving for self-sufficiency, they've had to teach themselves the kinds of skills that homesteaders had years and years ago, how the people who were uh, sufficient before the Industrial Revolution lived. And was were there skills that you picked up from these people or things that you learned? Or was there anything in their worldview that started to rub off on you or change the way that you thought? I mean, I try whenever I visit to work with the people I'm staying with and to have the photographs come out of the experience of being there. So I know the basics of how to start fires by friction, can harvest some wild food in North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, and Georgia. In terms of what skills I've incorporated into my everyday life, I live in a cooperative community in Berkeley. We grow much, but not all of our food in the backyard and buy food seasonally from local farmers. So the practices that I do, do lower my impact environmentally and also allows me to live affordably in what would otherwise be a pretty expensive city. So the, all the states that you mentioned there were from Southern United States, Southern Eastern United States. Was there a reason that you chose this area of, of the country to focus on? At first, I knew people there. 
But the reason why through my family I knew people there is because people have moved back to the land there for generations. Land in the rural southeastern United States is affordable and arable, and because a well-chosen plot of land will likely have a fresh water spring on it, and because the libertarian philosophy that's ubiquitous in the region gives a person, family, or community the freedom to live how they choose, people who want to move back to the land or off the grid often move to that region. Are they all agricultural, or you mentioned foragers as well? It varied. Uh, some people were homesteading, trying to grow or raise most of their food. Other people were trying to hunt and gather their food and live a more feral lifestyle. Within the book, on average, people were obtaining their water from nearby springs and to different degrees, hunting, gathering, or growing their own food. Lowell, who I photographed in Tennessee, told me a milk goat is the most valuable thing you can have. If they like you, they'll go anywhere you go. They live off nothing. They furnish you with milk. They furnish you with meat, and before long you got a herd of them. Take five milk goats and you can live anywhere in the world. With that and a sack of sweet potatoes, you've really got it made. Caleb, who I photographed in North Carolina, told me America is a land of such abundance that it's really difficult not to survive for an able-bodied individual. There's an abundance of everything to be had for cheap or free if you're willing to be resourceful about how you get it or what you do with it. So were all of these people just living alone, or you mentioned communities as well. What kind of mix did you find between loners versus communities of people who are living off the grid? There was as much diversity in the subculture of people I met as there is on, on the block where I live in, in the city. Some people lived alone, some people lived in families, and other people, other people lived with communities. It was a pretty wide range. So then let's go back to the idea about living in groups. Social dynamics, even in regular society, is is definitely something that people struggle with sometimes. And it's tough to maintain that harmonious coexistence that, you know, so many, so many people want. Um, did you find any social societal tools that were employed to keep people civil with one another? Well, again, there were no hard and fast rules or commonalities between the people I photographed. Lowell, who I quoted just a minute ago, also told me that it's hard to feed yourself for a year. And one problem you run into is that most people who are independent enough to try to live separately from the world and from worldly things are also too independent to listen to each other. So living off the grid in the woods can be isolating and growing enough food to feed a family does take a lot of work. So some communities struggle to maintain their religious observance. Others struggle to teach their children liberal values despite conservative neighbors. Some of the communities I visited were patriarchal, and while most children were homeschooled, they knew a lot more about wild edible plants than they knew about mathematics. That being said, when it worked, it worked well. And because the people I met had such a strong value system in order to be living the way they were, they tended to have enough in common with the other people with whom they were living to work through issues that came up. There's a shared, shared interest in making it work, and a lot more riding on it. And if you don't have enough food, harvested for the winter. Within a, within a small community, it makes that winter a pretty hard one to get through if you don't want to go to the local Walmart to buy food. I'm wondering about the relationship that you built with some of these people as, as you learned their stories. How, how much time did you spend in any one place? Were you there for days or weeks or, or months? Could you talk a little bit about the dynamics of traveling around to all these places? I traveled in a van with a bed in the back, so it made me relatively self-sufficient. I would stay for a few days to a few weeks at a time 
with each family or community, and I tended to travel for a few months at a time before coming home and editing the pictures, making copies that I would then bring back to the people I photographed during my next visit. It is important to me that the people I photograph are comfortable with me photographing them, and that the photographs feel intimate, that they feel like collaborations. So I, I visit for long enough to make sure it feels comfortable. I also had follow-through. So when I'd come the first time, I'd, I'd make photographs and, and then come back and show them the copies of the photographs first before anyone else saw them. And that level of trust that they would see the product that I was making also involved the communities in the larger project of making the book because they saw the way they were being pictured and then could contribute ideas to what, what else I could photograph. The following clips are excerpts from interviews I made throughout the project. The first is from Caleb, who was sitting on his porch in North Carolina. I grew up in Atlanta, and I feel like I got into it. You know, like a lot of my friends are punk kids in the punk community that have gotten into primitive skills and sustainable living and land projects and stuff like that. And I feel like I got into it the same way a lot of those kids did, which was um, thinking about things and thinking, experiencing in my life that the way our society is set up and structured isn't very fulfilling. And like, at a young age, that led to like a lot of anger. And I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but me listening to a lot of punk music, especially with music with political lyrics and political themes. You know, the more I thought about what was wrong with our society and with the structure of our society, the more it just felt like the biggest problems just come from being disconnected from, like, everything in our life, from our clothes and from our food source, and disconnected from the authorities and the power structures that influence our lives so heavily. It seemed to me the best way to counteract that was to try and create something different and to try and live in a way that was more connected so I could see see the cause and effect produced by my life. The second is from Natalie who is sharing a house with her partner Alex also in North Carolina. Yeah I was really obsessed with school like really really obsessed with school and like thinking that my identity and my value and my worth came from my grades and stuff. It was pretty weird. What do you go to college? Where do you go to school? What do you study? Um, well, I did my first two years of college when I was in high school. I went to the community college and did them and I studied engineering, which is my dad was an engineer and he really wanted me to be an engineer. And I really love math. And that's how my dad and I bonded when I was a kid was through math and um, so I got those two years done and then I went to the University of Washington and um, I was really into genetics and so I started doing um, into the pro genetic engineering program and um, studied all the time and I wasn't satisfied if I like didn't get you know, I'd have these classes of like 300 people and I would not be satisfied with myself unless I got like the highest grade on the test or whatever. Like, it was really obsessive and strange. 
but then I got hit by a car when I was riding my bike. Um, I used to be like really addicted to exercise and I would be like, whenever I wasn't studying, I'd be exercising and I was riding my bike and, um, on a, like a bike trail in Seattle and it crossed a road and this old lady turned a corner and didn't see me and I was like, I ended up on her windshield for like 30 or 40 feet and then she slammed on her brakes and then I flew into a telephone pole. <laughs> it was really, it was really crazy. And then after that, I, um, I got some money, a settlement from that. And I, I, um, went on a break from school and went traveling and gained a lot of perspective. And then there's a bit of a conversation between George and Christina talking about how they left their lives as motorcyclists and engineers to move off the grid with their family in response to a religious conversion. The details that are falling oh, out here, quiet. I was a uh, contractor, an engineer in the nuclear field. I rebuilt nuclear power plants. I was a licensed reactor operator. I've operated them, built them, tore them down, rebuilt them, restarted them. Okay, so I worked all over the country nuclear power on these outages. So that's why I was working at San Onofre, where they had three units, for years out there when I met her in, in Orange County. Okay. And I had assumed the uh, demeanor, if you will, of a biker, <clears throat> very seriously so. And so it took years to, you know, kind of work around that and come out of it. Yeah. But well, that's what—that's why we were traveling to places like New Jersey. And you met someone there who yeah. another engineer who started teaching us the, the word. <clears throat> Christian Israel concepts, and that—that was—that was the hook that got where I had resisted. I'm interested to know what these people thought when you brought the photos back to them and showed them. Oh, they used them. They used the pictures. They're up on the walls of wigwams. They've been used to advertise skill shares and rendezvous and community gatherings. So the pictures took on a life within the community that followed its own path compared to my personal career in exhibiting these photographs in galleries and publishing, publishing them with Nazareli Press in the book. Cool. Um, could, you, could you tell us um, any of the stories of individual people who had a disconnect or a critique of society that they were dealing with by living in this way? Natalie, who I met in the Wild Roots community in North Carolina, told me a lot of us who live here came with a kind of post-activist outlook, realizing that the world is really messed up that nature is being destroyed and being incredibly dissatisfied with consumer culture and the whole idea of success in modern society. All of us wanted to live close to the land and realized that the way things are going to change is not through activism. Of course, it's not perfect, but it's the closest thing I've ever seen when it's functioning, she told me. We're getting most of our food from the land and living mostly outside, getting to know the natural materials of our area, what we can make shelter out of, what we can eat, what we can make medicine out of. We're coming to understand how it's possible to live without civilization. Uh, Rita in Tennessee told me when the banks go down. The banks go down. People see that, you know, they can't get any money. Then they're going to want to get whatever they can with what money they do have. Stuff that they're going to need. 
and then you know, food's going to be number one. Uh, I think you know that most people will be able to get. And the next ones are probably going to be guns and ammo, probably gas, because everybody's going to you know try to no. go either go get their kids or kids are trying to going to try to get home. That's the main ones, you know, right away. And probably any medications if they think, you know, it's, it's going to get rough and they're going to get try to stock up on the stuff they can. But they'll be thinking, this is going to last six months maybe. They won't be looking five years down the road. We're getting ready, Rita said. We're gathering lots of seeds. We can grow food. We figure we'll prob probably end up feeding a lot of people. But if things go from bad to worse, You'll have to post people around the place to keep other people out. They'll show up and say, we're hungry, we haven't eaten in five days. You'll just have to tell them, no, you can't come in. So for her, the perception about society was very much that the recession was predicting a collapse and what they were doing was preparing for it. What Rita was speaking to there is unsustainability because her system isn't sustainable. It's, it's ending. What has this project done to shape your idea of sustainability? Well... If everyone moved back to the land, then there wouldn't be land left to move back to. So I think personally that there is, there's efficiency in the grid. Groups of people living together, whether at the scale of one house or at the scale of a city, can live more efficiently than people living alone. So I believe in the possibility of the grid being sustainable, but everyone would need to change their behavior to eat more local seasonal food, to eat less meat, to use less electricity and fossil fuels. I think we need to reduce our impact first and then focus on reusing and recycling the materials that we need to use to live well. Uh, I'm wondering why you chose photography as, your, as a medium of choice. Do you, is there something about photography that appeals to you? Do you think it captures the moment better? I like the process of it. I like how having a camera gives me a reason to visit and explore different communities. Everyone I photograph is either a friend or becomes a friend. I also like the ambiguity of pictures. I like that they take a moment out of context and that the best pictures make me want to look at them, but make me want to keep on looking at them without getting all the answers. They bring attention to things. And in the best case scenario, they start conversations. And speaking of conversations, what kind of conversations do these photos start when people see them, when they're on display or when you're talking about them? It's been exciting throughout this project to see the conversations that start in response to the pictures. The pictures have taken on a life in very different communities. So within the subculture of the people I photographed, the pictures are up on their walls. They're in photo albums. They're in brochures at advertising primitive skills gatherings. They're in local newspaper articles. They're in art publications and galleries and books. It's been exciting to watch the impact of the photographs. As I mentioned, since I gave copies back to everyone I photographed, many people have used the photographs to advertise classes and, and workshops. And I have links to those things on my website, www.lucasfolia.com. This year, a book of the photographs titled The Natural Order was published by Nasrelli Press. The book has been reviewed in publications around the world. And what's been exciting to me is that in each one of those reviews, the content centers around the pictures and the aesthetic, but also includes a discussion on what sustainability means in the context of modern development and what self-sufficiency means. I get most excited when people look at my photographs and say, wow, that's beautiful, but also 
start asking questions and wanting to learn more or talk to someone else about it. Do you feel that um, other people are encouraged to pursue the lifestyle of the, the people you photograph based on the photographs that they see? On my website and in the back of the book, I asked the people I photographed what authors and texts they would recommend to anyone who wants to learn more about the communities and activities that I photographed. And I have a list of the authors and schools and gatherings. And I have gotten phone calls and letters and emails from people who have used those links to find out more about the communities I photographed. At the same time, I want the photographs to start conversations, but I don't think of the photographs as propaganda, trying to convince people to live a certain lifestyle. Talia, who I photographed in North Carolina, told me, I'm negative, but I'm not quite so negative. I do think that there are things that people can do without you know, radically changing their lives. Or maybe it is for them, but you know, at least most people can't walk away from their, you know, kids' schools or their, you know, jobs or you know, mortgages or whatever. They just can't, and it would be asking too much for them to do it. But they can take some steps in just teaching themselves. Learning more about gardening, learning more about food preservation, and taking care of their own health. So there are some things people can do to become a little more self-sufficient. If there's any hope at all of being able to transition into a less chaotic life. And I wanted to ask about the relationship that you have with everyone that you photograph. Do you still get to keep in touch with them or talk to anyone? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm in touch with a number of the, number of the people I photographed. We write letters, emails, texts, phone calls. Cora, the young woman who appears most frequently in the book, texts me every week or so asking me to send her books. So I have an account open with Amazon.com and I have them send books to her. She's pretty far from the library. I wanted to ask if you thought that this contribution that all of these people were making and trying to live a different way, was this part of creating a new culture or were they even trying to do that or thinking about it in that way? I would say that it, for some people it was lifestyle activism. They're trying to demonstrate with their lives how other people could live. But for the most part, people were choosing a lifestyle that matched their values, that put them in the place they wanted to wake up in the morning. There wasn't necessarily an aim beyond that to change the world. It was about an individual life for most of the people I've met and photographed. Their own lifestyles, their friends, their community. And Caleb, who I photographed in North Carolina, defined feral living for me. And he said it's basically when you go from a domesticated, civilized state to a more wild and natural existence. It's not just being wild, it's becoming wild whether by choice and consciousness or through necessity. Were there any moments that you felt particularly unsafe because you were out in, in the wilderness or maybe in an unfamiliar territory? There was a time when I was walking with a man named Todd in the woods of North Carolina, and I almost stepped on a copperhead snake. And Todd got a stick and gently held it over the snake so it couldn't bite at us, and got a bag and put it in the bag and tied up the bag and then we were going to, after dinner, take the snake to a different part of the woods around the side of the mountain from where the camp was and release it. So we took the bag and went in to the wigwam that he had built where his partner had cooked dinner and we sat down and had dinner. And then afterwards took the bag and brought it around the other side of the mountain and opened it up and there was no snake inside. So that was one of the moments where I said, well, you know, this could have been pretty bad. I have no idea. So there's a, there's a line that, that 
a naturalist told me. I said, all mushrooms are edible, some only once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is unfortunately the case for, for many mushrooms. Um, so thanks, thanks again for your time. Um, was there anything that we missed that you really wanted to highlight before we asked you about your next project and where people can find your work? It's, you know, it's a tricky thing because oftentimes when I'm asked about the people I'm photographing, I don't want to put words in their mouth. I want the pictures to be open-ended and I want them to point people to learn more if they want to learn more, but I don't want to sensationalize or or put words in the, in the mouths of the people I photographed and got to know pretty well. I wanted to, to say that I think your photos have a, a real quietness to them. When I look at them, I, I feel like a, a serene quietness that kind of just goes through each of them. And that might be just because they're out in nature or because the way you capture them, but the ambiguity you were talking about definitely comes through. And I think that's really powerful. Thanks. I want the photographs to be beautiful but I also don't want them to feel idealized. And I think the lifestyle of everyone I photographed is hopeful, but it's also severe. And I hope that the pictures point to both of those qualities. Tell us about any projects that you're working on now or that um, you're starting. Recently, I've been photographing in mining boom towns and in ranching and farming communities across the rural West. I'm interested in jobs that keep people in small towns on the edge of wilderness. And I have been looking to capture the tension between their loyalty to the land and their growing dependence on mining industries that deplete the land. Some of those photographs are on my website and the series is called Front Country. Cool. Um, so where can our listeners find your work and see your photos? I post information about publications and exhibitions of my work on my website www.lucasfoglia.com and a book of my photographs titled A Natural Order was just published by Nazareli Press. It's available on amazon.com and at independent bookstores across the country. So included with the book is an anonymous, anonymously authored illustrated zine titled Wildlife Foodin and it's part journal and part survival manual and reads like a poet's version of the Whole Earth Catalog. The Bible for the 1970s, Back to the Landers. And my intention in, in including that zine with the book was to provide a resource for people who wanted to learn more about the lifestyle and the skills involved. When the oil stops, everything stops, nothing left in the fountain. Nobody wants paper money, son, so you just will stop counting. Can you break the horse? Can you light the fire? I couldn't quite hear your answer. You better start thinking where your food comes from and I hope you tend a good garden. Getting down on the mountain, getting down on the mountain. Don't wanna be around when the shit goes down. I'll be getting down on the mountain. When the truck don't run, the bread won't come. Have a hard time finding petrol. Water ain't running in the city no more. Do you hold any precious metal? Can you gut the fish? Can you read the sky? What's that about overcrowding? You ever seen a man whose kids ain't ate for 17 days and counting? Getting down on the mountain, getting down on the mountain. Don't wanna be around when the shit goes down. I'll be getting down on the mountain. 
So it's fascinating to hear the stories of so many people who have been moving off the grid and starting to create a lifestyle that they feel is more inherent with their value structure. As a journalist, I, I can t definitely identify with how uh, Lucas feels going into these situations where he doesn't always know what he's going to get. The story is going to be a little bit different here and a little bit different here. And it's fascinating that he's able to penetrate into this almost like secret kind of community that doesn't really get a lot of play in the press. And he's able to make his way and tell these stories that, that not many people know about. In talking to Lucas, I, I really saw how he could penetrate into these kind of communities. He has this kind of soft way of speaking. And I can see how people can open up to him. And it's it's very powerful the way he, he acts. Yeah, I think his approach is perfect for going into these communities. And it's completely not the approach that the mainstream media uses if someone from, you know, NBC News or something were to go in and talk to people about their way of life, it would be big cameras, big lights. And so photography is perfect for letting the pictures and letting the lives of these people speak for itself. It's not easy, but it also has its own rewards. And I highly recommend you go to Lucas's website and check out his photos. I was really blown away and looking at so many of the photos and also the photos from his newer series and looking at mining towns out west. It's really fascinating to see it. But as we spoke with Dimitri earlier and as we spoke with Lucas, there are a lot of people who are moving off the grid preparing for systemic breakdown. And so many of the themes that we talk about on our show are starting to get play in the media as well. A lot of these topics have been considered taboo or almost having like a conspiracy fringe element to them. But now, because the problems that are inherent with industrial civilization are becoming so severe, they really can't be ignored. And so I wanted to play a bit of this interview that I spotted on CNBC the other day with some financial analyst guys on Squawk Box and Mark Favre, who is notoriously one of the mega bears. He's always talking about decline, but I thought it was really interesting in how he broke this down. He identified a few things that some of the people that Lucas interviewed have already been doing. I've seen you say a, a global, I hope I don't overstate it, but a global depression, a global depression is, is on the horizon. Some, I don't know if I call it imminently, but, but I think, is no, no. it? No? I said that eventually the financial system will go broke. <laughs> okay. And that we will right. have a systemic oh, oh. crisis, but I didn't say tomorrow. Okay. I said it could happen in three years or five or ten years' time, and before it happens, there'll be much more money printing. So theoretically, when it happens, the Dow Jones could be at a hundred thousand and maybe at a million. Who knows? Depends on how much money you print. All right. That that would still be something. It, three years, five years, ten years. That would still be something that sounds really disruptive to me. And, and I I don't know how you'd prepare for it. Whether I guess you'd need. I would think you'd need guns and gold if if that's really coming, Mark. At food. You need a farm, you need a farm, and you have to train yourself not to depend on the internet and mobile phones and so forth and so on. Because when it happens, it could happen because of a cyber attack that would trigger such an event or any kind of other uh, act of warfare. But we have to prepare for that. It's like you have an insurance. I don't carry insurance policies, but say you have insurance for all kinds of eventualities, and so people who can afford, they should have insurance for that day when it will happen. 
But you understand, I want to clarify one point. I am bearish about the financial system, and I think eventually it will collapse. But if you think it through, what is better to own in a systemic crisis? Cash with the banks, treasury bills, or real estate in the U.S., or equities? I think that real estate in the U.S., I'm not talking about West 15, where Sandy Wild just sold his condo for 88 million, but I'm talking about real estate, say, in Arizona, in Georgia, Nevada, and so forth. That real estate is relatively inexpensive on an international scale. And you have a house, eventually you'll keep that house, unless you borrow too much yeah. money, but that is the well, problem hopefully each individual. Well, Secondly, equities. Equities. M M McDonald's will still be around no matter what crisis will happen in the world. Johnson & Johnson will still be around, Procter & Gamble, as well as the European blue chip companies and Asian blue chip companies. I'm not sure that sovereign bonds will still be around. That is another issue. All right, well, we still need the rule of law to protect our land. And, and I see what you're saying now. So the, 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 the financial collapse really means a huge devaluation of all of our purchasing power for, for all currencies. But you, yeah, that could still be maintained. Some, some value would be maintained in equities. But you would at least have to assume there's going to be a stock exchange where you can sell it to someone else. And, and rule of law, you know, you're not going to need a gun. You're not going to need people guarding your property, hopefully. Anyway, um, yeah, I've seen movies, too many movies, Mark, like The Road and some of these other, you know, things. And and uh, I don't know. Yeah, Batman. Actually, I don't watch movies. I watch reality historical Worst. precedents <laughs> and say in Scarier. Germany over the last hundred years, the fact is simply that people that own shares in Germany and own properties in West Germany and uh, the ones that owned bonds and cash, the cash and bondholders got wiped out precisely three yep. times, lost everything. Wow. And the ones that owned equities, they still have the equities. All right, Mark Faber, thank you. All right, we appreciate it. And so that was a clip from CNBC Squawk Box talking with Mark Faber. I thought it was really interesting how he said that if you're buying into sovereign debt, those sovereigns may not be here anymore. But what he said is that the corporations may still be here. He said there's still going to be a, be a McDonald's after collapse. What do you think oh, about th that, Seth? Thank God. I mean, you know, McDonald's <laughs> is, you know, the cornerstone of my diet, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it's an interesting point, because when we were talking with Dimitri, he mentioned how, you know, drug gangs and organizations that run drugs may have a chance at putting together this alternative to society. But when you think about it, mega corporations have tons of resources at their disposal, even if they're subject to the same problems of, you know, a breakdown in the money supply. They have big warehouses, they have stockpiles, and they have a pecking order where guys at the top could basically order people around. And even if the majority of people in the organization defected, it would make sense that if they're a business and they can still find a way to support themselves through whatever new exchange of value evolves, that there still could be a McDonald's or there still could be a Procter & Gamble after a financial system that goes broke. I don't know. Corporations are not going to go away when the whole financial system falls apart. I mean, Subway is the most ubiquitous restaurant in the world. Sandwiches have, have invaded the globe, the entire world. And those tastes don't go away right away. And the way of eating a sandwich is not going to even go away either. So maybe if, it, if Subway does stick around, it'll change form or maybe it'll use local ingredients or something like that. But the fact remains that corporations will probably still be around even when governments topple.
And actually, that brings up some very scary dystopian possibilities where we all live in corporate states and things like that. There's plenty so of So, Justin, would you like to live in Googleville, Apple World, Microsoft Land, or Chevinopolis? I think we already live in Apple World because everybody's getting hyped up for the iPhone 5 release. I'm pretty sure that I, the iPhone 5 may have a bigger impact on the economy than quantitative easing 3, but we'll have to see which sequel has the biggest result. Everyone hold on to your Apple shares because it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, as as Mark was saying, historically, he's been looking at collapses and he saw that, you know, people who had the sovereign debt, they were wiped out. But if they held shares in companies that met basic needs or they had productive land, they fared pretty well. So who knows? He might be right on that. But speaking about people who have been investing in something that's going to be around after the collapse of industrial civilization, <laughs> we're very fortunate to have so many people who've been sending us their hard-earned money. And it's really been overwhelming the amount of interest we've been getting in our $30 t-shirt sticker deal. That is, again, if you donate $30, we will send you a t-shirt anywhere in the whole world along with 10 stickers and a special thank you note. As well as special bonus content. That's right, as well as a very special bonus content. We heard from Diane in Sacramento, who sent us in a really generous donation and also a promise that she was going to be putting stickers all over Sacramento. So if you do live in Sacramento and you see those stickers all over the town, you can thank Diane. And we wanted to give a huge thanks to Louise in Toronto for getting some more t-shirts sent out to Toronto. We now have had, uh, she's the third person who's donated from Toronto, and she said that she's going to wear the shirt for her high school students, which is really exciting that you're going to be turning your students on so that they listen to great interviews like the one we had today. I'm sure they're going to have a lot to say to their parents. The parents will be extremely happy to know that our extra environmental mindsets are going into their children. We also heard from Charles in Chile, our first Chilean donator. Yeah, way to go, South America. Way to go, Chile. South America representing for the extra environmentalists. We did not get him a t-shirt yet because he wanted wants a medium and all you folks out there who are ordering mediums we hear you and we know that we that you want the t-shirts and we're going to get them to you as soon as we order our next round so be patient they're on their way they're going to come they're going to get them and they're going to be amazing thanks to stig in norway for sending in a donation we're really grateful to have all of our listeners above the 49th latitude listening to the show and sending their money our way. We really, really appreciate it. Another Scandinavian listener, Rune from Denmark, sent us in a really generous donation. And now he is going to be wearing his T-shirt all around Denmark. And a note for you listeners out there, I did spend my study abroad in Denmark. I have a really uh, positive feeling about Copenhagen. It's a great town and I, I miss it. I want to go back all the time. Thanks again to everyone who has gone to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com, has clicked on the donate link and has sent us their hard-earned dollars to support the show. We are using that to do things like send microphones around the world so that way we don't have terrible telephone call quality for our interviews. So you are directly contributing to the continued increase in quality in our show. So thank you. So thanks again to everybody who's been donating to us. I wanted to talk about a few things briefly before we close out. I'm going to be in Los Angeles around October the 14th for a few days for a conference coming up soon. 
And Seth, you're going to Los Angeles as well. That's right, Justin. I'm going to be in Los Angeles in the beginning of November. So if anybody is around during those times when Justin and I are going to separately be in the Los Angeles area, which, which on a side note is where I was born. So if anyone wants to meet up with us, have a beer, get a drink, have a meal, something along those lines, talk about how much they love Dmitry Orlov and his sailing boat, feel free to email the show, uh, let us know, and we'll be happy to meet up with you. You can put together a listener meetup, maybe grab some drinks or take our listeners out for drinks. We'll see how it goes. But regardless, it'd be great to meet up with anyone in Los Angeles. And then I actually have to go to San Francisco. I'll be in San Francisco from the 18th through the 24th of October. So let us know if you're in Los Angeles or San Francisco and you want to have a night of a few beers or coffee with the extra environmentalist. Yeah, or tea. Possibly kombucha. Yeah, kombucha works too. Yeah, ice water is nice. We also wanted to give a really special shout out to some of the Redditors who have been promoting a lot of the extra environmentalist stuff, you know. We wanted a shout out to Jar Jizzles, Pinoku, Rocky Lee, Puck2, Otis Buttonwood, Thunder Preacher, and Secret Town. So all you out there who are putting out the extra environmentalist links on the Reddit, we thank you so very much. Also, huge, huge thank you to so much to our web genie, Chris who has just been putting out our links on Amazon, who's been seeding us on Wikipedia, pretty much anywhere you could think of. He's a, a SEO master, and he's been making the Extra Environmentalist pop up all around the net. If you, too, would like to link to the Extra Environmentalist on your own personal blogs, homepages, webpages, mom's homepages, grandmother's webpages, feel free to do that, and we will be eternally in your debt. And in addition to Chris, a huge thanks to our editing team of Josh and Kevin, who are doing such an amazing job in helping us to edit these podcasts down and get them ready for you guys. And also, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our voicemail line. Remember, give us a call on Skype or give us a call on our Google Voice number if you want to leave a message, you have a critique of anything we've talked about on our show or you have a question you want us to address in the conversation. Thanks to Lucas for sending along so many great audio clips from the interviews he did while he was putting together his book of photos in natural order. We'll let one of those audio clips from Frank take us out. So all you extra environmentalists, get out there, put money down on a farm, and get a boat and sail around the world. Getting down on the mountain, getting down on the mountain. Don't want to be around when the shit goes down, I'll be going to ground on the mountain. Getting down on the mountain, getting down on the mountain. Don't wanna be around when the shit goes down. I'll be getting down on the mountain, getting down on the my opinion, if we ever succeed in being sustainable as a race, it'll be the first non-natural thing we've ever done as, as a race. Because the natural order of things is when a species gets dominant in its niche, it overruns it completely to the point where it eats all of its food, takes over its own environment, and then it crashes and burns. Now, if we can get sustainable out of that, it'll be the first non-natural thing we've done. All natural and technological.
legal processes proceed in such a way, the availability of the remaining energy decreases. In all energy exchanges, if no energy enters or leaves an isolated system, the entropy of that system increases. Energy continuously flows from being concentrated to becoming dispersed, spread out, wasted, and useless. New energy cannot be created, and high-grade energy is being destroyed. An economy based on endless growth is on the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with Robert Neuwirth about the global informal economy and the stealth of nations. I mean, I think this is the economy of survival. For those of us in the West, this is how people survive in tough economic times. I mean, it's hard work. You talk with people who sell things on the street. It's hard, hard, hard work, and you have to put in a lot of hours to really make it work. And there's a lot of risk involved. This is the economy of survival that people do when they really have to do it. But then it becomes part of them, and if they can grow with it, then that's great. The fundamental laws of thermodynamics will place fixed limits on technological innovation and human advancement. In an isolated system, the entropy can only increase. A species set on endless growth. All across China. Factories are shutting down because industrial civilization no longer demands the manufactured items that Chinese workers are producing. For just a dollar a day, you can support a Chinese factory worker to prevent that person from going back to a sustainable farming lifestyle. And as a way to say thanks, we'll send you a piece of plastic bullshit. Hi, I'm Sean Connery. You might remember me from movies like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Today, I'm here with a very special guest, Dr. Wan, to talk about what you can do to save industrial civilization. Dr. Wan, what have you been up to today? That's right, Sean. Thanks so much for being a part of this important telethon. I am a journalism drone, and in my spare time, when I'm not bombing little children in Afghanistan, I am going through the top drawer of co-eds, that is right, Sean, in their bedrooms. Don't ask me how I get there, Sean, because it's way too complicated for your small mind. But as a drone with unlimited power, I can not only report on journalistic issues, but also spy on Americans. And Sean, today, for people all over the world who want to make a difference, just a dollar a day, they can save the economy. Live from Hell, Michigan, it's the Telethon to Save Industrial Civilization. Brought to you by the First National Bank of Mattress. Rest easy because you're resting on your cash. Hi, this is Sean Connery here again, and we're here to help facilitate your contributions to keep industrial civilization going. That's right, Sean. We have people calling in from all over the globe. Who is answering the phones? Are these more of your colleagues who are answering the phones tonight? No, no, actually, Sean, we have a very special guest of panels from Arrayed from the Radio World and the Podcasting Universe. Let's hear from some of our panel now. Take phone calls, I do. Hmm? Is that, is that Yoda? Yoda, how is the phone line going? Hmm, yes, Dr. One. We're getting many calls from central bankers. Called one very special call the other day. Banker pledges unlimited contributions to our telethon. May adjust rate each month to different levels, hmm? Yoda says force of easing continued indefinitely. Mm. That's right, Yoda. Thanks so much for being a part of our 
telethon team. Devoting yourself to this cause is one that you will not regret. So Sean, tell us a little bit about what our amazing donators can receive for just a dollar a day, or maybe even a little bit higher. Well, I knew when the Koch brothers called in, they pledged a little bit more than a dollar a day, and they received a little bit more than the plastic bullshit you receive for that donation level. For donating as much as $20 per day to save industrial civilization, we'll send you a video game based on their life. The Koch brothers, it's a lot like the Mario brothers with a lot more Ayn Rand analogies. It's a lot of fun. Yes, I've played through that video game as a drone in a lot of my spare time. And uh, let me tell you that gold bars are the least of what you can get out of this game. Let's shoot over to another one of our amazing guest panels from uh, the podcasting universe. Uh, is that Bohemian Grover I see over there? Hi, it's your old pal Grover. We've been getting calls from all around the world. Everyone wants to contribute to keeping it going, especially a lot of bankers. Are bankers the only one who have been calling in, Grover? Uh, um, yes. Well, there you have it, folks. Bankers are keeping the economy flowing. What more can we thank them for? I don't know. Sean, what are your feelings? Well, it turns out that if you're contributing as much as $50 a day, we'll send you a credit card. Keep this thing going. In fact, this credit card is a special credit card. Brand new credit card that Goldman Sachs is offering to its new consumer credit customers. The Goldman Sachs credit card comes with $2,000 of debt at least on it already when you receive it so you can have the experience of all of your indebted patrons in paying off that credit card bill that's right sean i don't know about you but anyone that i know who doesn't want four thousand dollars in debt has another thing coming and for all you special Infowars fans out there i know who you are every one of you because i spy on every single one of you we have a special panel member just for you alex Tell us how it's going. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Drone. It's been a really busy night here. We've been getting a lot of calls from bankers, as uh, as Bohemian Grover was uh, was telling you about. But actually, I've been getting quite a few calls from politicians as well. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing the number of calls we had coming in from uh, from Tampa and from Charlotte for the last few days. We've been getting a lot of calls, and lots of people want to keep this system going. It looks like uh, the the elites have something to say about uh, uh, where they're taking this thing, and they want to keep it going. They, they really like their power. Now, I know you and Bohemian Grover have been working hard to expose the elites. Tell me, Alex, have we been getting any international donations? Ah, uh, yes, Mr. Drone. I, I would reveal uh, where my funding was coming from, which sources it was coming from, but I can't do that. Uh, all I can say is that because America is the greatest country that has ever been created and the Founding Fathers created a perfect constitution, we have some elites who are trying to manufacture it for their own aims and send people like you out to spy on uh, good Americans like us. All we need to do is just replace those elites and everything will be perfect and we'll be completely fine, and that's the message that I'm trying to get across through my work. Yeah, That's yeah. all right, Alex. I already know because I know everything about everybody. Sean, what is the next level of donations that people can expect if they go over the amount that you've mentioned before? Turns out that you want to donate more to keep industrial civilization going. You can also receive special trip to the Federal Reserve. That's right. If your bank goes on holiday, you can go on vacation with it. Go to the Federal Reserve and you'll see where that money's coming from. Once again, folks, that is a trip 
to the Federal Reserve. Those dates are non-negotiable and subject to blackout dates. Literally. Sean, tell us more about how this telethon is going down. Yes, it's, it's been incredible that we keep getting calls coming in from everywhere. You'd think everyone would be fed up with industrial civilization, but turns out there's a lot of factories around here. All right, we're going to take it over to another person working the phones, and she's going to work a little voodoo to keep this system going. Oh, hello, it's Mama Vandersmeet. Uh, you have forgotten about me. But I am still here, don't you worry. I am putting many, many a hex on all the people calling in. So, Mama Vandersmith, take us through the magic that you work over the line to make sure that we get the most money possible to keep this system going. Oh, thank you for asking, Sonny Boy. You're so pretty. Well, <laughs> generally, when the caller will call, I will construct a voodoo doll with my voodoo magic. I will bend the collar over and steal his wallet with my invisible hand. Oh, so very tricky, very tricky. Well, well thank you, Mama Vanderschmidt, for sharing some of your special techniques. Oh, make not at all, sonny boy. Well, it looks like we're proceeding along just fine here at the Telethon to save industrial civilization. We're going to be going well into the night. And that's why we're also going to be running some classics. We'll keep you entertained here, and we're going to take it over to the latest episode of Survivor Athens. Thanks for joining us, folks. I have a lot more spying to do, and a lot more bombs to be dropped in Afghanistan. I've got to hit the skies. Survivor Athens, Greece. <laughs> Is there too much grease on this slippery slope to collapse? Find out soon.